Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. We are in a series called Rogue Warrior Poet King. It's about the life of David. David, I don't think too many people would argue, was the greatest king that Israel ever had. And today we're going to look at something that is relevant to all of us, either in this moment or season in our life, or at some point it will um, be relevant to us. And, And here's where we start. The ways of God are most unappealing and seemingly irrelevant when we are angry, isolated, or afraid. However you define God, whatever that, uh, you know, the ways of God, whatever that looks like to you, however you see that, they're most unappealing and they're most irrelevant whenever we go through those periods when we feel like we're angry, we've been isolated in some way, or we're afraid. These are the three conditions that have the ability to undermine even the most dedicated uh, follower of Jesus. Uh, Those three things have the ability to um, cause us to crash through every moral and ethical boundary that we might set up for ourselves in our life. And somebody could probably get up here and and, and tell us a story about a time that, that they felt alone or afraid or isolated and it caused them to do something that they kind of crashed through one of those barriers when it came to their finances or relationships or you know, something professionally at work or something with one of their kids. And, and one of these three, or maybe a combination of these three, are probably what goes into your greatest regret. So, you know, if I were to have you come up here and tell your story, you would start telling the story, and it wouldn't take long for us to identify, okay, that's where you felt angry, or that's where you were isolated, or that's where um, you were, fear drove you to make a decision that you look back on now and you go, man, what in the world was I thinking about? Uh, and, and probably, you know, we're, we're not done doing things that we regret, right? I mean, that's, a, that's, a, that's always on the table. There's always a chance we can mess it up. Uh, if you don't believe that, just follow me around. But, but you know, that's probably going to be the reason for your next big regret is that you felt angry, isolated, or afraid. And here's the reason. When, we, when we're in those conditions, we feel overwhelmed with the emotions that become associated with those conditions. We feel compelled to do something. Like, you know, it's almost a panic. I've got to do something to release this tension. In fact, you'll do just about anything. Sometimes we'll even do the wrong thing just to, to, to make this, this go away. We resort to instinct. We resort to, you know, what did we do the last time this happened? What do we think is the best way to go forward. And as a result uh, of that, things don't usually get better. Things usually get worse. They don't bring us closer to God. It usually moves us further away from God. Things aren't less complicated. Things become more complicated. And we end up angrier and lonelier and more isolated. David had two colossal failures in his life. One we're pretty familiar with. It's when he was the king He's in his 50s, and we all, we're all familiar with, with David's uh, run-in with Bathsheba. Everybody knows about that. But the one we're going to look at today takes place when David was in his 20s. It's not a well-known story. In fact, I think that probably, I would, my guess would be that at least half of you in the room are not familiar with the story we're going to look at this morning. Happens when he was in his 20s, and, and it's really one of the most interesting and dramatic stories when you understand the background, and I'm going to try and lay that for you this morning. I'm going to try and give you a bedrock and a, you know, a foundation of, of background so that you understand what, what's going on. But 
when you, when you start to see what David did in this particular case, it's just fascinating. It's very dramatic. Last week, we followed David into the valley of Elah, where he goes down into the valley, and he's going to face off with Goliath. You know, the two sides are watching all this unfold, and he defeats Goliath. He becomes the most famous person in Israel. He takes David, uh, Goliath's sword, and he cuts off his head with it, and, you know, it's just this great big moment for David, and, and you... you <laughs> It's easy to lose sight of the fact that when that happened, David was 15 years old. He's 15. Everybody knows his name. He's the most famous person in Israel. He becomes a legend. And the king realizes this young man has a lot of potential, but he also has a lot of influence. And he also has a lot of power. And so King Saul, who was Israel's first king, he was handsome, he was tall, he was a fairly gifted soldier, but he was also really insecure. And so King Saul came up with a plan that might have been a good plan if it had been applied to a normal person, but David was not a normal person. And he decided that what he wanted to do was he wanted to get David into his family so that he could control him. So he offers David his, one of his daughters in marriage. Now David's response is interesting he says, basically, I'm not worthy to be the king's son-in-law. My family is not famous. We don't have a lot of money. We're not rich. I'm really not worthy of any of this. And besides that, I'm 15, okay? I don't have any business getting married at 15 years of age. So David refuses the king's offer to become the king's son-in-law. And the people are saying, man, this guy's amazing. I mean, he has this chance to be the son-in-law to the king, and he, he just passes that up. So time goes by, Saul is looking for ways to control David, and David falls in love, and he falls in love with one of King Saul's other daughters, a young lady named Michael, and they get married, and then he becomes friends with King Saul's son, Jonathan. In fact, if you know much about, King Saul, uh, about David and Jonathan, they become very close. They become like brothers. And the next thing you know, King Saul realizes, I really have a problem. This kid you know, he, he's, he's getting into my family, and, and I think it was probably a bad idea for me to, to bring him in like this because he's so influential, he's so powerful, he, he, you know, everybody loves David, and King Saul becomes very, very jealous of David. Time goes by. About seven years pass, and David is in King Saul's favor, and then he's out of favor, and then he's in favor, and then he's out of favor. And on one occasion, King Saul decides, I gotta get rid of this kid. He, he's blowing up, he's getting bigger than me, and I don't, wanna, I don't wanna risk it, you know. I don't wanna kill him, I'll let the Philistines do it. So King Saul starts to send David on these um, special secret missions, uh, these, these highly dangerous uh, adventures and and really the goal is that David won't come back he's just trying to get him to a place where he makes a mistake and and you know he's going off and he's doing things like Jason Bourne type things and and if I don't know if you've watched Terminal List you know he's doing those kind of things or the Dirty Dozen maybe that's your your jam I don't know but <laughs> David would come back successful every time he was such a great warrior he would go off he would do whatever it was the king wanted him to do and then he would come back and the people would love him even more and so Finally, King Saul's had enough, and, and he discovers that every time he tries to have David secretly uh, arrested, his own son Jonathan would warn him, or his, his daughter Michael 
would warn him. And, and David kept slipping through King Saul's fingers, and frustration just starts to build and build. And so finally, it comes to a head one night over dinner. Now you have to understand that, that dinner then is like dinner is now. Dinner's kind of the big meal, right? And so um, in ancient times, that was the case. And, and it was a real treat. It was an honor to get to sit at the king's table. And David would typically show up for dinner with Saul, but in the last few turbulent years, David has been more and more absent. He's not showing up to dinner like he used to, and once in a while, King Saul would pipe up and say to, to Michael, or he might say to Jonathan, haven't seen David in a while, you know, where's David? I, you know, what, what's going on with him? And, and Jonathan would cover for David. Jonathan would say things to his father like, well, you know, I think he's over here doing this mission, or he's, you know, last I heard he was he was out here doing this. So finally, one night at dinner, the whole family is gathered together. King Saul loses it. He, he loses it. He just explodes. And here's what the text tells us. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 20 this morning. If you have your Bible, I would encourage you to open that to, to 1 Samuel chapter 20. And we're going to be in 20 and 21 most of the morning. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan, and he said to him, you son of a... <laughs> You're like... Oh, what's he going to say? I didn't know that was in the Bible. Did you know that was in the Bible? Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan, and he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Now, that's a great alternative right there, okay? This gave you a great alternative. You don't have to say the other one. You can say this one. Now, I really hope that Jonathan's mother was not in the room when, when this is all being talked about. Verse 20, the second part, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? And you just get the impression that the relationship between King Saul and the mother of Jonathan is probably not a great one. Verse 31, as long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom. Now see, you got to understand from, from King Saul's standpoint, he wants Jonathan to be the next king. He wants the royal lineage to go through his line. And so he's talking to Jonathan like he's going to be the next king. As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. And Jonathan goes to David and he says, David, you, you, you got to leave town. In fact, it's worse than that. you got to get out of the country. My father is, is not going to rest until he sees you laid low and he sees you killed. He is so threatened by you and your reputation that he's lost his mind. And, and you know, he's, he's intimidated by your influence. And so, David, you've got to do something. Now, David is 22 years old. And suddenly, he is afraid for his life. He is alone. He has been rejected by the man that he has risked his life for. He feels rejected by the country that he's risked his life for. And in particular, in this particular case, David has done nothing wrong. He feels abandoned, he feels angry, and he is afraid. And David does what many of us do when we feel abandoned, and we feel angry, and we feel afraid. He panicked. He decided to take matters into his own hands, and he lost sight of something that is hard for us to imagine. He lost sight of the fact that God was with him. I mean, if you know anything about the life of David, what, the one thing you know about David is God was always with David. 
right? I, I can, right now, I just hear my mother's voice going through my mind. I've lost track of how many times my mother has reminded me, Brett, God is with you. God is with, has, Brett, has God ever not been with you? No, Mom. Yeah, God's with you, Brett. And that was David. He, he lost sight of the fact that God was with him. It's easy for us to, God is with you. He's with you. It's easy for us to lose sight of the fact that God is with us. Because when you read these stories and narratives, you know, we know the story. We know, how it, we know that, that throughout David's life, God shows up in David's life and does these amazing things. You know, and we're saying, why would you do that? Why would you make a decision? Why would you panic like that? Why would you run? Why would you abandon your morals? But you know what? There may be people watching you right now and they might be wondering the same thing. Why would you do that? In fact, let's just be honest. You, you can look back at a season, uh, on a season in your own life, now that you have a little bit more wisdom, a little bit more seasoning in life, a little bit more context, and, and you can look back on your life and you can ask, you know, why, why did I do that? Why did I make that decision? Why did I spend money like that? Why did I go there? Why did I just run away? What was going on? in my life, it's real simple. When you feel abandoned, when you feel angry, and when you feel afraid, our national inclination, natural inclination, is to panic. And that's what David did. First Samuel chapter 21, verse one. David went to Nob to Ahimelech, the priest. Now let me explain something to you here. Um, at this particular time in history, Israel did not own the region around Israel, so, or uh, around Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is really not the capital at this particular time. There really isn't a capital. And so the epicenter of Jewish worship would have been wherever the tabernacle was. Wherever the tabernacle was, that's, that's where the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant was. And, and wherever the Ark of the Covenant was, that's where the high priest would have been found. And so for reasons of security, the, the tabernacle was moved from time to time. The tabernacle was made to be a very portable thing, and they could move it around, and, and so they would do that. They would move it from time to time, and at this particular time, the, the, the tabernacle happens to be in the city of Nob, and that is where this high priest, Ahimelech, is with the Ark of the Covenant, dispatching his duties as the high priest, and so David goes to the city of Nob to talk to the high priest, and this is where David's problems are going to start. So when David showed up, 1 Samuel 21, verse 1, Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? Because normally when David showed up, you heard David show up before you saw David. You would, he, he traveled with a thousand men, and you would hear them coming. It was an unmistakable sound. You knew when David rolled in, that David was rolling in because he didn't come by himself. He always had a posse with him. And Ahimelech has never seen David by himself. And suddenly David shows up. He's a little nervous. He's kind of disheveled. He probably doesn't smell great. Um, you know, he's by himself. And Ahimelech's looking around and he's thinking to himself, what in the world is going on? David answered Ahimelech the priest and he lies to the high priest. Now David is against lying. I mean, that's one of the top ten, right? Thou shalt not lie. David knows this. He knows this is the law. In fact, David is just feet away because he's close to the high priest. That means the Ark of the Covenant is right there in the tabernacle. And in the Ark of the Covenant, supposed to be, there was, I mean, what we're told in Scripture is that the actual 
Ten Commandments that Moses handed down were put in the Ark of the Covenant. And one of those in, on the big top ten was, thou shalt not lie. David is a Jewish man. He's a man who loves God. He writes about God. He's against lying, but David lies. Why? Because he's afraid. And as we've said, when you're afraid, when you're abandoned, when you're lonely, when you're angry, isolated, we have a tendency to move away from God, not to move close to God. And here's what David said. Ahimelech, David answered Ahimelech the priest. The king, now he's going to lie, listen to this. The king sent me on a mission and said to me, no one is to know anything about the mission I'm sending you on. Ahimelech, I'm here on this you know, secret mission uh, sent by the king himself. Verse 2, as for my men, I have told them to meet me at a certain place. He doesn't have any men. He's afraid if he tells Ahimelech the truth, Ahimelech is not going to help him. And this lie could cost David his life. This lie could cost Ahimelech and his family their life. Story continues, verse 3. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. So now, David is here. He's without any food. He's traveled to Nob. He doesn't have any food. And Ahimelech's thinking to himself, okay, this is just weird. You show up by yourself. I've never seen you by yourself. You show up, you're hungry. You don't have anything. You're not traveling with anything. David, you're a scout. You're a, you're a great warrior. You know better. You don't travel without food. You know, I, I know who you are. I know how you roll. The king's son-in-law shows up without any food because he's on a secret mission from the king and his men supposedly are hiding somewhere. Verse 4, but the priest answered David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here. Let me explain that. Every Sabbath, the priest would make freshly baked bread and they would put it on the altar before the Lord. And then they would have their services, and they would, they would do their, their thing, and then they would come back and hi-ho, you know, the, the, the Lord had not eaten the bread. And so that bread was left over, and the, the priests would then take that, and they would consume that bread. They would do so because they were consecrated. They, they were ceremonially clean. And so that's the bread that Ahimelech now offers to David. Now you've got to understand... Ahimelech knows who David is. He knows how connected to King Saul he is. He knows David is an important man. Um, but this bread was meant for people who are ceremonially clean, and that did not include David. And Ahimelech says, you know, we don't have any normal food here. We just have what the priests eat. But if you want the consecrated bread, then, you know, you can have it. So, you know, warning lights should be going off for David. When he hears the word consecrated, David should be thinking to himself, that's not me. That's not for me. I shouldn't touch this. It's not for me. Verse 6, so the priest gave him the consecrated bread. So now David not only has lied about why he's there, he's lied in order to be fed. And if you're here last week and you remember we talked about this, ask yourself, you know, we talked last week about David, how he wrote these words in, in uh, Psalm 25, I will put my trust in you. My hope is in you all day long. You remember that? I even had you repeat that with me. I will put my trust in you. My hope is in you all day long. And you, you hear this story, and you know what David's doing, and you want to ask yourself, what happened to that David? 
What happened to the David who went through life and there were parts of his life where he just said to God, I will put my trust in you, I will hope in you all day long. And then the story gets really intense and the drama really starts to ramp up and I'm hoping as we enter this section that just maybe God starts to speak to you. David asked Ahimelech, don't you have a spear or a sword here? <laughs> and this is where Elimelech starts going, okay, nothing about this adds up. There's something funky going on because, you know, you're by yourself. You don't quite look right. You know, you got that look like you're looking both ways. You're kind of anxious. You're hungry. And now you're telling me you're on this secret mission for the king and you don't even have a sword. Nothing. This is not adding up. What's going on? But David, you're the most famous warrior in the nation. How can you not have a sword? Verse 8. David's saying, don't you have a spear or a sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's mission was so urgent. Aren't there, there are red lights going off for you if you're Ahimelech, right? You, you hear this and you're like, this doesn't add up. Now here's where if this was, if we're making a movie, and we've got a soundtrack, and you know how the music just kind of flows through the movie. This is the place in the movie where the, the music changes. It's one of those things where you hear that music change, and you just, it communicates to you, think this, it's getting dramatic. This is, this is starting to get heavy. This is, wait a minute, we've gotten into a new place here. The scene is heightened. David is telling this, this priest he doesn't have a sword. And this should be David's wake-up call moment. This should be the moment when David goes, okay, I'm crossing lines here. I shouldn't be doing this. This is where David needs to go, oh my goodness, what am I thinking? Why am I doing this? Why am I considering these options? This is his moment when his eyes should have been open, and he's, he's asking for a sword. He's asking for a spear. The priest replied, listen to this, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed seven years ago, in the valley of Elah is here. Now first, let's just stop and remember something about Goliath, and let's remember something about Goliath's armor and about the tools that he used in war. They were huge. You remember that? Remember how heavy they were? The sword that Goliath would have carried would have been too heavy for David. You know, when you were a warrior, your sword was something. I don't know if you've ever watched the movies where these guys, you have swords, but they become like a, an extension of them. It's, it's just, you know, there's the right weight, there's the right balance. And, and Goliath's would have been weighted and balanced for him. It wasn't weighted and, and, and balanced for David. For David to even consider trying to use this, I mean, it would be like him trying to drag this thing, right? Like I'm going to slay somebody, and I'm dragging this sword around. It just doesn't make any sense. I need a sword, I need a spear. And David, the only sword that's here is the sword that that. You used, when you defeated Goliath, it's the sword that you took from him and cut off his own head with it. The day you became the David that we all know and love and fear. The scripture tells us that when David beheaded Goliath, he kept the sword of Goliath as a souvenir. I mean, who wouldn't do that? I would do that, right? You, you, you do something big like that, it's like, this is my trophy, I'm going to I'm going to keep this sword. And so he did. He, he took it to his tent. He kept it in his tent for a while, but eventually he decided he wanted to, de to dedicate it to God. So he took it to the temple. He gave it to the priest. 
and, and he gave it to the high priest. And it was basically a way of saying, I recognize that God was with me and I want to dedicate my life to God and I want to give this very prized thing. I want to give it to God um, just as a way of saying, I'm dependent on God, not dependent on the sword. And so there's so much emotion and there's so much significance attached to this sword of Goliath. And suddenly David is reminded of the afternoon he wandered down into the valley of Elah to go fight with Goliath. And Ahimelech brings out the sword and all those memories start coming back to David. The afternoon he as a 15-year-old boy, walked down into that valley to face off as a shepherd boy with just a sling against mighty King David. And he stood there in front of that giant, totally dependent on God. What happened to that courageous, clear-eyed shepherd boy? What happened to him? What happened to the kid who looked into the eyes of Goliath, knowing that he had a God that was bigger than Goliath, totally dependent, that he would see him through? What happened to the kid that stood in front of Goliath and said these words, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied this day, the Lord will defy you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. What happened to that kid? What happened to the boy that ran toward danger, not away from danger, because he knew God was with him? What happened to the, the poet who would grow up and pen the words, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me? Where's that kid? Where's that faith? Where's that confidence in God? And the answer is fear, anger, <laughs> loneliness, the three giants those three things have the potential to cause us to forget all the defeated giants in our past. Those three things have the capacity to make us forget those times when God showed up in our life and delivered victory to us. But David has the benefit of this visual aid and a reminder of God's faithfulness and God's power, and he misses it. The priest replied, the, the, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. Now, the ephod is a, a, like a garment. It was like a uniform that the, the high priest, the priests wore to dispatch their duties. It was pretty sacred. It's, it's wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There is no sword here but that one. In other words, David, we don't, you know, we don't trade in swords at the tabernacle. That's not what we're about. <laughs> the only reason we have that one is because you gave it to us. So he, he goes and he brings out this sword. Can, can you imagine? Can you imagine what's going through David's mind the minute he lays eyes on that sword? He hasn't seen it in seven years all the memories, all the drama. He starts thinking about that day, and Ahimelech is thinking, none of this makes sense to me. <laughs> none of this makes any sense. 
This would be a decision that David would regret for the rest of his life, and it would become, like all of our regretful decisions do, something that is a permanent mark in our life that we think back to and we think, why did I do that? David said, there is none like it. Give it to me. And David literally takes matters into his own hands. He lies, and then he runs like crazy away from crazy King Saul with a sword that was last wielded by a warrior that David had taken down with a string, a sling and a smooth stone, the sword that he had used to cut off the head of that giant. He should have seen it. He should have remembered. It was too much to miss. A flawed person, a flawed response, a disastrous outcome. But this is where our story starts to intersect with David's story, isn't it? We need, we need God the most. When we need him the most, that's when we are, are really sometimes least apt to lean in God's direction, when we need him the most. When we need God the most, we are often most tempted to run away from God, not to run to God. We opt for the things that didn't work before. We opt for the things that got us in the shape we're in now. We opt for the things that often lead to regret. And you can see this in other people so easily when you're watching somebody else and you can think to yourself, oh, don't do that. Don't do that. What are you thinking? And they're making a decision based on anger or fear or isolation, feelings of abandonment, and you see it in them and you think to yourself, you are about to make the biggest mistake of your life. Don't do that. And somehow it's so easy to see it in other people and it's almost impossible to see it in ourselves when we look in the mirror. And here's why. Because you and I can convince ourselves that our story is different. Our, my story's different. Brad, if I could just... If I could just tell you my story, you would understand my story's different. That's what David thought. David thought what we think. If God were with me, this wouldn't be happening to me. And here's something I've learned over the years as a follower of Jesus. <laughs> it's so easy to trust God when we have nothing to trust him with and nothing to trust him for. You know when you're young and you say, God, I'll just do anything you want. I'll follow you wherever you, I'll, I'll go where you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do. Some of us that are old enough to remember that song, I'll go where you want me to go. Please tell me somebody knows that song. I didn't sing it very well, but you should know the song. You know, when I'm 16 years old, and I'm at church camp. I'm standing, you know, one of my favorite places, if you know me, you should know, church camp. That's where I met Dee Dee. Um, and, and just was at church camp, and it just had such a huge impact on my life. And we would be there and be around that campfire, and Doug would lead us and talk to us and give us these great talks and challenge us. And, you know, he would, I've, I've gone without radios and albums and books and my, you know, friends that wanted to get me in trouble. I've, gone, I've given all that up for a week, and I've gone to just be, have my Bible and people to talk to me about Jesus and Christian friends. 
And my, by Thursday night, my head was so tuned in to God, I'll go where you want me to go. I'll do whatever it is you want me to do. And it's almost like God said, well, Brett, to be honest right now, you don't have a whole lot. I mean, there's some stuff in your, in your bedroom that belongs to you. I guess we, you know, you got that. The car you're driving doesn't even belong to you. I mean, there's not really a lot for you to give me, okay? I don't have a lot to work with here. But I'll take it. If you're offering, I'll take it. It's easy to make those commitments when you don't really have anything to live, uh, you know, anything to trust him with or anything to trust him for. When things are going great, how hard is it to come in when things are going great and sing the songs that Shelby leads us through on a Sunday morning? When things are going great in your life, it's not hard to sing those songs. But man, when the chips are down, when things aren't going good, When you feel angry, isolated, afraid, abandoned, and you walk in here, you've dragged yourself in here. And you're thinking to yourself, I don't want to hear these songs, and I really don't feel like listening to Brett talk this morning. I'm just, I'm I'm not into it. It's easy to do when everything's going great. It's easy to show up and serve. It's easy to pray prayers and trust God and pray for your friends that are going through hard things. All that's easy when when you don't feel isolated, afraid, or abandoned. But all that changes. It's easy to trust God when we don't have anything to trust him with or trust him for, but it's harder to trust him when things that we value start to slip away. So David takes Goliath's sword, and just to show you where this goes, and you know, it's it's easy to be critical of David in this moment. It's easy to look at him and go, man, what are you doing? But we all have our version of this. We all have our story that we could tell when we knew better. We should have thought it through. We should have remembered that God is a good God. David takes Goliath's sword and he knows he has to leave the country. And guess where he goes? (laughs) He goes to the land of the Philistines. He's got Goliath's sword. He's probably dragging it. He probably can't even lift the thing. This thing would have been huge. He's got Goliath's sword. He's not prepared to have a fight with anybody. And he's going to go to the land of Goliath. His name is Mud in Goliath. He shows up in the land of the Philistines with Goliath's sword. Oh, it gets better. He goes to Gath, which is the city from which Goliath came and, and this is why I believe that this story really happened because you wouldn't you couldn't make this up David is panicking he's afraid he goes to the Philistines he goes to the king and he says listen I want to join your army I want to fight for you guys I'm going to be a part of your army and I want to be a part of your people they don't buy it they say no, no, no. you're David you're the one who killed Goliath we know who you are don't deny it don't try to hide from that you're carrying a sword for crying out loud only one sword like that in the whole world so now David's really afraid because now he's surrounded by his enemies so he pretends that he's insane he starts to claw with his fingernails on on the wood that's around him he starts to slobber and you know blow snot bubbles and you know it's just totally undignified this is in the bible okay you should read your bible this is in there well philistine king says look i have enough fools in my court i don't need any more idiots okay i don't need any more crazy people um thanks but no thanks get this guy out of here so david flees the philistines 
and he goes to live in a cave, and eventually, uh, you know, he doesn't know what else to do, and, and so he's angry, he's isolated, and he thinks, look, I don't deserve this. And here he is, he's alone, and then finally he comes to his senses, he goes back home, and he finds a prophet, and he says, I've really messed this up, I want to know what is God's will for me. Would you seek the Lord on my behalf and see, um, would, would you give me the counsel of God? And the problem is, the damage has already been done. When David was with Ahimelech, and he's having those discussions about bread, and, and you know, is there a sword here that I can take? There was a man who was in the, was heard that conversation. His name was Doeg. Doeg heard David talking to Ahimelech. And he didn't hear the whole conversation. He just heard enough of the conversation to be confused. He heard enough of the conversation to make Ahimelech look really, really bad. And so Doeg goes to King Saul and he says, listen, I know where, King, uh, I know where David is. He went to Ahimelech for advice. And I hate to tell you this, but the chief priest, your chief priest, has sided with David against you. Here's how that conversation went. 1 Samuel 22, verse 10. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. This is Doeg talking. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. In other words, Ahimelech fed him and Ahimelech armed your enemy. The king is furious. Verse 11, then the king sent for the high priest, for the priest Ahimelech, Son of Ahitub, I tell you, man, it's fun saying these Hebrew names up in front of all these people. It's amazing. And all the men of his family who were the priests at Nob, and they all came to the king. Verse 13, Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me? You and the sons of Jesse, son of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of God for him. In other words, you're in on this. You're against me. My daughter is against me. Jonathan is against me. You've all conspired against me. And now the chief priest is against me? So that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today. Ahimelech is like, what in the Saul, what are you talking about? Verse 14, Ahimelech answered the king, who of all your servants is as loyal as David? In other words, listen, there's nobody in, in, that serves you in, that, that, that is as loyal to you as King David is. He's the, everybody in our community knows how loyal King David is to you, Saul, or how loyal David is to you, King Saul. No, everybody knows that. This isn't a secret. Who of all your servants is as loyal as David, the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard? You've entrusted this man with your life, King Saul. Everybody knows David's loyal to you. And he is highly respected in your household. Verse 15, was that, the day, was that day the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Let not the king accuse your servant of any of his father or any of his father's family, for your servant knows nothing at all about this whole affair. But the king said, you will surely die, Ahimelech, you and your whole family. It's crazy. The king has lost his mind. He's afraid. He's paranoid. And the king did something that is really, really foolish. Verse 17, then the king ordered the guards at his side, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because they too have sided with David. But the soldiers... 
that had traveled with David refused to kill the priests. King Saul, we'll kill your enemies. We'll kill prisoners of war. We'll kill people that come in and rob and steal from our villages and we'll, we'll, we'll defend the castle, you know, we'll do all that, but we're not going to kill the priests of the Lord. And so Doeg hears all that and he thinks, well, here's my opportunity. <clears throat> this is my chance to get in good with the king. So he raises his hand and he says, hey, if they won't do it, I'll do it. And Doeg slaughters 85 priests. Saul isn't finished <clears throat> he sends Doeg to Nob and he says, you go kill every man, woman, child, and infant in that village. Very few people escaped the slaughter. One man did. It was one of the sons of Ahimelech. That man fled to David. He falls to his knees. He tells David the entire story. And David is broken. And he says this in verse 22 of chapter 22. Abiathar, which is the guy that got away, I am responsible for the death of your whole family. Can you imagine being David in that moment? David was responsible for the destruction of an entire village. Taking matters into our own hands sometimes feels good. It seldom turns out good. We're going to pick up the story with David uh, next week, but for now, I just I have some questions to <clears throat> kind of apply to us as we wrap things up. People walk up to me all the time after church, and they say, Brett, how did you know? <laughs> I'll say, what are you talking about? How'd you know? Who emailed you to tell you that we are struggling with this thing? It's like you've been reading our emails. It's like you've been sitting at our kitchen table. There's, how did you know that that's what we're going through? Did somebody call you and tell you that's what we're going through? And the answer is, yes, they called me. No, they didn't. They don't call me. They don't call me. That's the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. All of in this room, all of us in this room are going to have experiences just like this when anger or fear or abandonment pushes us to do something that we really shouldn't have done and we're going to regret it and it's going to have some fallout. Our isolation, our loneliness causes us to do something foolish, things that, that if we saw others getting ready to do it, we would say, no, 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 don't do that. But somehow we can see it in them and we can't see it in ourselves. So here's the question. What is your loneliness, anger, or fear causing you to consider that you've never considered before? Relationally, financially, physically, some kind of risk that you would have never taken before. An old habit that maybe you've spent weeks or months or maybe even years trying to overcome and man, you're so tempted and you're about to give in. You've even spent money trying to get over this thing. And all of a sudden, you find yourself ready to re-embrace whatever that is. What is your loneliness, anger, or fear causing you to consider that you've never considered before? And have you ever really actually seen that work out? How about this question? Who is your loneliness, anger, or fear causing you to consider that you've never considered before? You never called her back. You were thinking about it. And you know you have no business doing that, and you know it's going to mess you up. 
Here's the question, and this is the question that David missed, and you kind of get it. David was 22 years old. He, you know, he had a lot of living left to do. He's by himself. He's afraid. But this, this is the wake-up call question. Who beside you do your considerations put at risk? And here's the answer to that. The people you love the most and the people who love you the most. Dad's anger got out of control and it blew back on you and you've been dealing with it ever since. Mom's depression and loneliness got out of control and she turned to some things she shouldn't have and you've been dealing with it ever since. Who else is at risk? Who else's future hangs in the balance of your personal decisions? What would you tell yourself? What advice would you give someone else who was you? What would you tell yourself? When it's someone else, it really seems clear. When it's you, you think you're the exception to the rule. I, I do a lot of counseling. One of the things I've discovered in counseling is that everybody thinks that their situation is unique and different. We, we all think we're the exception to the rule. You are a unique person. Your circumstance is not unique. You are a special person, but your circumstance is not special. These are well-worn paths. Trust me, I've heard these stories over and over. I've lived some of these stories over and over. We all go through these same things. The circumstances really don't change over time. The people do, the circumstances don't. It's the same thing. I've had people come in, Brett, you just don't understand. Oh, I do understand. <laughs> Trust me, I do. I did what, you did what you've done. I did what you're thinking about doing. It cost me. Grown-up King David would later give us this advice. Psalm 9, verse 9. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed. Not a chemical, not alcohol, not an affair, not a fly. Golly. It's like in my mouth. Not an affair, not another person, not another debt, not a new car, not a shiny new house. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. A stronghold is where you ran when you were in trouble. It was that place you could go to that was safe. That's what David called God. God is the place you run to when you feel oppressed, when you're angry, when you're isolated, when you feel abandoned, you don't know what else to do. You run to God. He's the stronghold. David would say, those who know your name trust in you, for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. David would say, don't do what I did. I felt forsaken, but I was mistaken. A thousand years later, one of David's descendants, someone who was born in what they called the city of David, would look into the eyes of some frightened, abandoned, angry, isolated, overtaxed, irritated Israelites, and he would say, come to me, all you who are burdened and weary, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. When you feel forsaken, you are mistaken. God is with you. That's what Jesus would say. That's what David would say. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed and a stronghold in times of trouble. Let me pray over you. Father, David is our example this morning, but we could easily stand in his place because we have all been angry, isolated, and afraid. 
And we have all made really dumb decisions in that space. I'm thankful that your grace is bigger than our mistakes. I'm thankful that we don't have to carry that around with us for the rest of our life, that we can give it to you and you take it away. But God, there are people in the room right now who are in the middle of this. And all the rest of us would look at them and say, don't do that. Help them, Lord, to know that you are near, that you love them, that they can run to you. And Father, for the rest of us, help us to see it in ourselves because it's so hard for us to see this in the mirror. We want to live a life that honors you, that glorifies you, that lifts up your name. And so Father, would the, would the decisions that we make beginning today be made from a, a place and a perspective of God is with me always. We pray these things in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen.